Enjoy the game by Lionel Burney. Chapter 3 Giant Steps. As the players were to find out, Graham Taylor had eyes in the back of his head and a desire to influence every aspect of the club. But even he couldn't see and do it all by himself. He needed an assistant. Taylor was still a few weeks shy of his 33rd birthday, younger than some of his players, which posed a problem when it came to finding the right person to work with. He didn't need a recently retired player, someone whose career path had reached a similar point to his own, alongside him on the bench, he wasn't looking to delegate training sessions to someone else either. Taylor was relishing getting his hands dirty, rolling up the sleeves of his tracksuit and homing in on the finest of fine details. The job ahead of him was much bigger than the one he tackled at Lincoln. Elton wanted Taylor to take Watford through the divisions to the very top. Taylor needed guidance, but he didn't want someone from the first division coming down to tell him how it was all done up there. He had his own ideas and was determined to get them across to the players. What he wanted was the football manager's equivalent of the Encyclopaedia Britannica, a rich resource that would provide the answer to any question he might have, but that would be happy to sit on the shelf until called upon. He didn't want someone cramping his style. Such was the specific nature of the job description, it was proving to be a difficult position to fill. And then, one day in late summer 1977, a letter arrived on Graham Taylor's desk from... Mr. Bertram Mee. Let's roll back a few years, back to when Taylor had been learning the ropes at Lincoln City, missing the odd foot loop and burning his hands as he made the occasional slip as he tried to climb the ladder. Right at the start, he had made a couple of nervous phone calls to two imposing figures in the game, asking if he could borrow a player on loan. His hand trembling slightly, Taylor dialed the number for Arsenal Football Club and asked to be put through to the manager. "'Me here,' said the voice, sternly. Taylor stumbled through his pre-prepared lines, politely inquiring whether a particular reserve team defender might be available for loan. "'Young man,' said me brusquely, "'I have twenty-six players here, and at the moment seven are injured and three are suspended. So answer me this. Why should I help you?' Well. That told him. Undeterred, Taylor called Bill Shankly at Liverpool next. The eventual answer was the same, but the rejection was delivered with warmth and humour instead. With his unmistakable Scottish burr, Shankly said, eh, Listen to me, son. Eh, do you like your centre-halves to be hard men? Yes, Mr Shankly. Call me Bill, son. Eh, well, that's a good start. Let me tell you this. The Liverpool first-team defenders are hard men. Eh, and the Liverpool second-team defenders are hard men. And that, young man, is why ye canny have any of them. Taylor made a mental note that if he ever made it to the top of the tree and found himself on the other side of such an exchange, he would try to remember what it was like to be a young manager making his way. One had turned me down in the most obnoxious manner, the other in a wonderful way, says Taylor. And so, when the letter from Mr. Mee arrived, Taylor could have been forgiven for remembering with sourness their exchange and filing it in the waste-paper basket. But he did not. 
because double-winning managers with a fearsome reputation for organisation and discipline did not write to you offering their services every day of the week. Bertie Mee was one of the greats. But as Pat Rice, who played in Mee's double-winning Arsenal side with distinction, says, anyone who was at Arsenal with him will tell you Bertie was no coach. He was an organiser and a fantastic manager of people. He knew how to speak to people to get the best out of them. He recognised that everyone was different, that some needed jollying along and others needed to be barked at. A career in football almost passed Bertie Mee by. Although he had been a professional player before the Second World War, he had got no further than Mansfield Town and Derby County's reserves. During the war, he served in the Royal Army Medical Corps and qualified as a physiotherapist. When injury curtailed his own playing career, he spent 12 years helping to rehabilitate servicemen who had suffered disabilities. Later, he became a specialist in treating sports injuries. And that's how he came to join Arsenal in 1960 as a physio. Six years after that, he was as stunned as anyone to be offered the manager's job. At first, it was thought of as an interim measure, but Mee's strict rules and work ethic went down well with the directors at Highbury and soon yielded results on the pitch. In 1971, Arsenal won the league championship and FA Cup, the coveted double. Taylor had been in the crowd at Wembley that afternoon. A persistent hip injury was bringing his own playing career to a close and at the final whistle he found himself unable to take his eyes off the diminutive figure of the manager. Balding, but with what little hair he had, arranged neatly and deliberately, slightly built and immaculately dapper. Me did not look entirely comfortable being hoisted in the air by his sweaty, victorious players, but the bond between the jubilant footballers and their reserved but revered manager was obvious, however unlikely it seemed. Me's strength was recognising what others were good at and allowing them to get on with it. In terms of discipline and order, he was as inflexible as any sergeant-major and was a stickler for detail, but he was also inclusive and prepared to listen. He would allow his players to speak their mind or offer ideas as long as they respected his word as final. As Rice, his captain for years, says, Bertie wasn't a meddler. He said his piece and that was it, but he only expected to have to say it once. He was cut from rather starchy material sometimes seemed a little pompous and was occasionally slow to see the humour in things, which led outsiders to view him as a sort of Captain Mannering character, particularly in his final days at Arsenal, when the game was evolving too quickly for him. Bertie didn't write asking for a job, says Taylor. He was far too proud for that, but he wrote saying he was available if we had anything. One of the first things Taylor did when they met was to remind me of that phone call a few years before. Oh, no, no, no. I'd never have spoken to you like that, he said, shaking his head. But Taylor was adamant he remembered the exchange accurately. He sometimes mentioned it, and Mee's response was always the same. You did, Bertie. I can remember it as if it was yesterday, Taylor would say. Choosing Bertie Mee, who was 58 years old and an experienced man with a fine reputation, was not without its risks for Taylor. People might have thought that Mee had been brought in over his head, or to hold the uncertain young manager's hand. Taylor did not want someone breathing down his neck, scrutinising every decision and telling him how things had been done at Arsenal. After all, this was not Highbury, with its famous marble halls. The corridors of power at Vicarage Road were lined with chipboard. The decision turned out to be a masterstroke. 
Mee worked exactly as Taylor had hoped. He was a fountain of knowledge, tucked away in his little office down the corridor, to be tapped into whenever the manager needed. Mee had no interest in getting involved in the finer points of the day-to-day running of things. Even in his heyday at Arsenal, he had not been a regular at the training ground, and he did not have close relationships with players or even much of a grasp on the tactical subtleties of the game. But combined with Taylor's hands-on approach, Mee's experience, steady hand, ability to express himself clearly in very few words, and the respect he commanded within the game, made it the ideal partnership. Taylor was thrusting and modern and equipped to cope with the changes the 80s were about to bring. Mee was from another time, an era when he did his post-match press conference by telephone on a Monday morning, when he'd had plenty of time to mull over Saturday's game. Mee was able to temper Taylor's impatience. Taylor was in a hurry to change the world, and Mee would remind him that Rome was built brick by brick. Mee always said that there were two types of decisions to be made at a football club, those for people aged under 40 and those for people over 40. A younger man will waste a lot of energy thinking he can change someone's character, he once said in an interview with the Sunday Times. When you reach a certain age, you realise that people do not change all that much, and that you must work with people the way they are, or find someone else to do the job. His presence added gravitas to Watford Football Club, and opened doors that might otherwise have been shut to Graham Taylor, a young manager with an unfashionable fourth division team. He introduced Taylor to important people in the football world. He helped to implement the scouting system that Taylor knew would be vital if Watford was to identify and develop its own young players. Having Bertie Mee on board would also persuade parents to give Watford a chance in the face of a crowded catchment area dominated by the big London clubs. And he convinced a sceptical Eddie Plumley, one of the game's most respected administrators, to drop down from First Division Coventry City to take over as Watford's club secretary. At times he could be a forceful, forthright character. Mee specialised in pricking egos, taking people down a peg or two before they started believing their own hype. He was only five foot four, says Taylor. He couldn't punch you, but he could hurt you. Dear me, he'd let you know in no uncertain terms what he thought, often in less than a sentence. But there was a discipline to him that knitted in to what I wanted the club to be about. Taylor trusted and respected me from the start, and me knew his place too. It is telling that in the first official team photograph of the Graham Taylor era, taken on the eve of the season in August 1977, Mee is seated at the end of the front row, rather than in the middle alongside the manager. It upset the symmetry of the picture, but it sent a message. Taylor was the boss, at the centre of things, running the show. We used to have our staff meetings at 8.30 in the morning before training, Taylor says. I used to deliberately come in at 8.40. The weight would have me squirming in his seat and checking his watch. I knew Bertie hated that lack of punctuality, Taylor says. I hated it too. But it was important to establish that, yes, he had achieved all these things, but I was the manager. It was my way of reminding not just Bertie, but everyone who was in charge. I know how that sounds, and I don't particularly like saying it, but it had to be established at the beginning. Every manager wants a winning start in the league, and Graham Taylor got his wish. A 3-1 victory at Stockport County kicked off the 4th Division campaign. It was a fine beginning, but it is on home turf that a manager earns his place in the supporters' affections, 
and so the sceptics were arching their eyebrows at all the talk of this being a new dawn when Taylor's first home league match ended in a 3-1 defeat to York City. It was a minor glitch that turned out to be the only home defeat of the season. Taylor quickly assembled a winning machine, and by the spring the championship was assured. Only a minor wobble in the final weeks when they drew five in a row stopped Watford from breaking Lincoln's points record. In those days of two points for a win, Watford ended up on 31, three shy of Lincoln's best. Spirits were high on and off the field, and Elton went along for the ride, travelling with the team to away games by train or coach. He relished being one of the lads and even invited the players to join him in the recording studio in Berkshire to sing backing vocals for one of the tracks on his album A Single Man. When the record went gold, he made sure each of the players got a gold disc. The relationship between the chairman and manager was not a traditional one. Elton used to joke that he was the only chairman in the league who had a manager older than him, says Muir Stratford, who was one of the directors. The pair were like brothers with Taylor assuming the role of older sibling. Elton was the chairman, but it didn't stop Taylor pulling him into line, as if he were one of the players arriving late for training. There was one day when Elton came in wearing some really leery gear, even by his standards, says Ian Bolton. The glasses, the hat, the jacket, the flares, the platform boots, all completely over the top. Graham pulled him to one side. We're a football club here, Taylor told Elton. We have standards and we have a dress code and it's important we all maintain them. The players called him Elton, except in public, when it was Mr Chairman, and they respected him. In the past, potential new players had been offered tickets to see the chairman in concert, perhaps because the club thought it might convince them to join, but Taylor stopped all that. The football came first, and you either wanted to play for Watford, or you didn't. Stratford believes Elton enjoyed being around the football club because it was a sanctuary away from the yes-men who inhabited the world of music. No one at Watford fawned to him. Elton had already been successful for a number of years, says Stratford, so this was probably the one place he could go where he met ordinary people and could talk about ordinary things. Yes, he was extremely flamboyant, and some directors at other clubs weren't too keen on that. Despite the outfits, which I have to say weren't to my taste either, he was very down-to-earth. He'd talk about football, or what was happening in the world, and he liked to hear other people's views. There were some clubs where the directors looked down their noses at Elton. The typical football club boardroom could be a stiff, snobbish place. Many directors were local businessmen made good, who enjoyed the status their football club afforded them, and they wanted to keep the riff-raff at arm's length. The supporters were there to support, the players to play, and the directors to direct. That's how they saw it. Elton enjoyed the idea of making the football club feel like a family and he wanted Watford's boardroom to be a warmer, friendlier place. Under Jim Bonzer, it had been a male-only domain. Mrs Bonzer ran a ladies' room where the wives could gather, says Stratford, and she ran that room with a rod of iron. My wife will tell you that if you wanted a cup of tea, you practically had to go down on bended knee. Now the chairman and manager got to know the players' wives and made them feel welcome around the place. On match days, children were not just tolerated, they were made a fuss of. On one occasion, Taylor was in the middle of a half-time tirade when Keith Pritchett's two-year-old daughter charged into the dressing room asking for her daddy. The left-back feared the worst, but the manager burst out laughing. That broke the ice a bit, says Pritchett.
The happy vibe was helped by the fact the team was successful. At one stage, they went 11 home matches without conceding a goal, and at the end of the season, there was a shiny cup for the trophy cabinet. Taylor hosted a garden party at his home in Nascot Wood to toast promotion and the championship. Sam Ellis liked a cigar. The manager wasn't too keen on his players smoking, but he was happy to turn a blind eye until Ellis put the cigar out in one of Graham's plant pots. The next day, the manager fined his club captain £25. Nothing got past him, and standards were never allowed to slip. One afternoon in autumn 1977, Bertie Mee travelled up to Highfield Road to watch a Coventry City reserve match. He didn't have his eyes on any of the players. Instead, he wanted a word with Eddie Plumley, Coventry's general secretary. Plumley had played as a goalkeeper for Birmingham City before forging a reputation as a skilled administrator at Coventry, one of English football's most progressive clubs in the 1970s. The Sky Blues chairman, Jimmy Hill, used to have a saying, Give a busy man a job and he'll do it. And that was how Plumley saw himself, and because he'd played the game and filled so many roles, he could relate to just about everyone at a football club, from the chairman to the maintenance man, the manager to the girl in the ticket office, and everyone in between. Bertie told me they wanted an executive manager, someone to run the administrative side, says Plumley. I gave him a couple of names and he shook his head. Then me said, What about yourself? I thought, hang on a minute, I am General Secretary of a First Division club. Why would I want to drop down to the Fourth Division? Mee insisted that Plumley came down to meet Elton and Graham Taylor, and, after some long and persuasive discussions, not to mention an attractive salary offer, Plumley was won over by their vision and enthusiasm. They were talking about reaching the First Division in ten years. Elton's drive was incredible. He was a winner and I could tell they were going places, says Plumley. Without sounding big-headed, I got the impression I was the last piece in the jigsaw. Graham and Bertie wanted to get on with matters on the pitch, but they needed someone to knit things together and try to improve the stadium. Plumley didn't like the title executive manager, so he asked to be called chief executive instead. Because he contracted hepatitis, Plumley didn't start work at Watford for three months. When he finally arrived in January 1978, the size of the task in front of him almost bowled him over. He didn't know where to start. If Plumley's first impression had been of a corrugated graveyard, his heart sank when he had his first proper look round the stadium. It was falling apart at the seams. The team were well on course for the third division, and the stadium, if you can call it that, wasn't even up to that standard. We had a lot of work to do. The main stand on the east side of the ground dated back to the early 1920s, with an extension bolted on in 1969. The Schrodel stand had a small roof that didn't even stretch far enough to cover the front dozen or so rows of seats. The open terracing at the Vicarage Road end arched round in a big horseshoe, and although the rookery end was covered, the steps were so shallow the view was not particularly good. There were hardly any facilities to entertain guests and visiting directors, let alone executive boxes. Shortly after Plumley arrived, a team of engineers turned up to do some routine tests on the safety barriers on the Vicarage Road End Terrace. They had this piece of equipment that wound up to a certain tension to test the strength of the barriers, he says. I left them to it and went back to the office. 
No more than ten minutes later they came back, and I said cheerfully, That was quick. Everything okay, then? Everything was not okay. Under only moderate pressure, the first barrier had twisted and pulled straight out of the concrete, as had the second. The engineers told Plumley if they'd carried on, there would have been no barriers left, and the vicarage road end would have been shut down. They told Watford to replace the barriers, and the bill came to tens of thousands, the equivalent of a couple of new signings for the first team. The ground was a constant drain on resources. It was like pouring money into a bottomless pit just to keep pace with the team's progress through the divisions and cope with rapidly evolving safety rules. At the end of every season we'd sit down, Elton, Bertie, Graham and I, Plumley says. Graham would say he needed two or three new players and I'd say we needed new turnstiles or we had to fix the roof or repair the plumbing or whatever it was. Every time we went up we had to do more work just to meet the regulations and the bills could be eye-watering. One year the main stand had to be fireproofed, and I remember watching them spray this stuff all over it, thinking, we could have bought a decent midfielder with the amount this is costing. Whatever Watford spent on players, Elton spent the same again on the stadium, but the supporters didn't tend to see the importance of that. When Plumley had negotiated to join Watford, Elton said he wanted to relocate the stadium. The dream was to move a few hundred yards south onto the council-owned allotments. Plans had been submitted for a 35,000-capacity stadium with a roof going all the way round. Next door would be a 5,000-seat indoor sports and concert arena, including a sports centre and gym for public use, as well as outdoor all-weather pitches for five-a-side and hockey. It was a truly revolutionary idea because Watford had approached two supermarket chains keen to develop a retail park on the same site. The proposals were years ahead of their time. A football club, indoor arena, community sports centre, shops and leisure facilities all on one site. However, Watford Borough Council did not share the vision, and the plans were turned down. Plumley met with executives from both Sainsbury's and Asda, but the council feared an out-of-town supermarket would drag trade away from the high street. They told us that would never happen in Watford, says Plumley. Well, it wasn't too long before it did happen in Watford and in many other towns across the country. You look at football clubs who have moved in the last 15 years and a great number of them have retail parks or leisure facilities attached. Watford could and should have been pioneers in that respect, but the council was not cooperative at all. They had the power to say no without offering any compromises or alternatives. They said a 35,000 capacity stadium was too grandiose for a club like Watford. That was the word they used. They simply didn't share our vision that we were going to have a go at reaching the first division – and I think that is what offended Elton most. The allotments were cited as the main obstacle. The council was obliged to provide allotments within easy reach of residential areas and simply couldn't or wouldn't look for an alternative site. Watford did explore other possibilities and at one stage even threatened to move out of the borough. From memory there were nine sites we had looked at, says Plumley. One idea was to develop a football stadium and supermarket on Orphanage Road, close to Watford Junction Station. That proposal was turned down by the Council's planning committee in June 1979. Other potential sites included Leavesden, near where the film studios are now, or the so-called Golden Triangle of Land between the M1 and M25 motorways. But every suggestion was blocked for one reason or another, 
with Councillor Fred Hodgson, the chairman of the planning committee, a particular thorn in the club's side. The local authority in Milton Keynes offered the club some land for a new stadium, but Taylor said that was too far to move, although he did not rule out leaving Watford. They looked at Jarman Fields in Hemel Hempstead, now home to a supermarket and cinema. Plumley says the idea of moving further afield was never seriously entertained, but was more of a ploy to force the council to be more flexible. It didn't work. The council remained intransigent. Plumley also rejects any suggestion that a ground share with Luton Town was ever considered. Not by us, he says. Certainly not. There was talk in the press of a site a bit further up the M1 being a possibility and of Luton coming to play there. But that was never a runner for us. After more than two years of fruitless talks, Watford finally conceded defeat and announced in early 1980 that they would be staying put. It would be almost six years before there was any major development at Vicarage Road. Graham Taylor, aware that the supporters standing at the popular end of the ground got wet when it rained, refused to have a covered dugout on the touchline until there was a roof over the Vicarage Road terrace. In the meantime, Plumley had to make the most of what he had. The stadium was a bit embarrassing and it was a damn shame. We didn't have much, but we were still proud and we wanted to make people feel welcome. We tried to spruce everything up and make sure it was clean and tidy. We had such vibrant colours, red, yellow and black, so we painted everything and tried to give the place some kind of identity with uniform signage and that kind of thing. Plumley was very aware of the power of having a corporate identity and one of his first ideas was to redesign the club's badge. We'd had that old cartoon Hornet, which I hated. It had been on everything, the shirt, the programme, even our letterheads, which we sent out to people who we hoped would take us seriously. It was still in use when I arrived, and I felt the cartoon Hornet didn't give the right impression. It had to go. A design firm in London was commissioned, at considerable expense, to come up with something new. We wanted a bit of class brought to it, Plumley says. The brief was simple. To get away from the old, to have something new that would work as well on the team shirts as it would on the company letterheads. They came up with the heart. It's not a stag or a moose, just to be clear. That remains today. That design was the first one they showed us and we all liked it. I can't recall having a choice, but as soon as we saw what they came up with, we went with it. It was very striking. The club was gradually developing an identity. When he arrived, Graham Taylor had asked if there was a piece of music that the team could run out to, something that resonated with the past. Someone suggested Z-Cars, the theme to the television police drama. It had first been used in 1963 because the manager, Bill McGarry, liked it and had been used on and off over the years. A little later, they started to play the theme to Chariots of Fire as the teams warmed up. Just before the kick-off, the music would fade out and the last strains of that evocative tune would drift on the breeze as the crowd began to roar. Vicarage Road may not have boasted an impressive grandstand, but they soon had a state-of-the-art scoreboard, built by an electronics company based in St Albans. The company had already provided a small scoreboard for Queen's Park Rangers, but having built a bigger version, they wanted to test it. They offered it to Watford to use for free, although the club later bought it for a few thousand pounds. The problems we had with that thing. Gee whiz, says Plumley. Sometimes it would work, sometimes it wouldn't. The rain would get in and it would go haywire, and the light bulbs it went through, hundreds of them, 
I used to dread seeing the guy who operated it on a Saturday morning, because he'd come into the office, having tested it, and say, Well, this bit is working, but that bit isn't. And I'd say, Just as long as we can show the score, it'll be OK. The scoreboard was operated from a desk next to the press box in the main stand. They came up with the little jumping men that everyone remembers, says Plumley, but we had difficulty controlling the guy on match days. He'd get carried away, and he'd put up messages that were not exactly Watford's idea, things like, let's hammer them, which wasn't really the sort of thing we wanted to put across. Graham and I had to take it up with him every now and then. Having spent more seasons in the third division than anywhere else, the supporters considered it their natural level. Anything better was a bonus, but life in the fourth division was definitely slumming it. Taylor wanted to change the perception of what it meant to be Watford Football Club by eradicating the lower division mentality and seeking out new horizons. The development of a partnership between Luther Blissett and Ross Jenkins was to be the driving force. After winning the fourth division title in 1978, the Blissett-Jenkins strike force really hit its stride in the third division. They were the perfect players for Taylor's attack-minded approach. Jenkins had the ability to win the ball in the air as well as hold it up and lay it off, while Blissett's pace put defenders on the back foot, with Bobby Downs supplying the crosses. Watford could be devastating. Jenkins had played for Crystal Palace when they were in the first division, but he was so tall and slim as a youngster, he lacked the strength to make an impact. When he was still only 20, he played in a game against Liverpool at Selhurst Park. During the match, Jenkins crossed over to the touchline to cover a Liverpool throw-in. The ball went over his head and Liverpool went on to score. On the Monday morning, we had a chat about what had gone wrong in the game, which, looking back, was a very negative thing to do. The manager asked what I'd done to try to stop the goal. I said I'd gone across to cover the throw. What had the rest of the team been doing? The feeling was I shouldn't have said anything and after that I didn't play much. Eventually I was moved on. I must say I didn't enjoy the style of play too much. One newspaper once wrote that Palace were playing their usual 8-1-1 formation, and that was fairly typical. It wasn't adventurous football at all. Jenkins joined Watford in November 1972. Two seasons later they were relegated to the 4th Division, and on the team's bad days Jenkins would be the target of the supporters' frustrations. Playing in a poor team magnified the awkward aspects of his play, but the biggest problem was the absence of a cohesive plan. That all changed when Taylor arrived and Jenkins began to flourish. Graham knew how he wanted the team to play, but more importantly, he knew how to put that into operation, says Jenkins. Some people know what they want, but not how to get it. Having said that, I didn't get the sense that he knew specifically what type of player he wanted. He wanted people who could make certain runs, and he knew we had to be fit so we could play a fast-paced, attacking game, but he didn't set out with an idea that he wanted a tall striker for the sake of it. From the start, we worked exceptionally hard on two things, the physical training and on a set pattern of play. Luther Blissett arrived in England from the West Indies when he was six. He had made a reasonable impact in the fourth division, but he was still raw. When Watford reached the third division, Blissett hit his stride. His pace and his work rate had impressed the manager, but often Blissett had to be content with coming off the bench. One of Blissett's strengths was that he never gave up, and he was not discouraged by a bad game. Sam Ellis used to tell me that you had to give everything in training to get in the team, and if you got in the team you had to give everything to stay there. But that was exactly how I saw it. 
I wanted to play as well as I could and score goals. But if I couldn't score, I wanted to work as hard as I could so that even if things weren't going well, I was still an asset to the team. Early in the season, Watford played Newcastle United in a League Cup tie at Vicarage Road. Blissett came on as a substitute and scored twice in a 2-1 win. That was a bit of a breakthrough, but Graham was quick to remind me that it would soon be yesterday's result and that I had to do it all again tomorrow. The work that Blissett and Jenkins had been doing in training was beginning to pay off and the partnership went from strength to strength. People think myself and Ross just happened, but it didn't just happen, says Blissett. We worked longer and harder on the training ground to make it work. We used to close down the four defenders to stop the opposition getting out and then we had to make the runs into the channels and do all those crossover runs. We did an awful lot of work in training so that it got to the point where it was second nature. We could sense where the other was and the rest of the team knew where we were going to run. It didn't happen miraculously by some sixth sense. It was all done in training. The match that put Blissett and Watford on the back page of the newspapers came at Old Trafford in October 1978. Watford beat Manchester United 2-1 in the League Cup. At the time, it was arguably the finest result in the club's history, eclipsing the FA Cup sixth-round win over Liverpool in 1970 because that had been a home match. The second goal at Old Trafford was a typical training ground move, says Blissett. Ross received the ball in the channel and it was laid back to Dennis Booth. I knew where I had to be, pulling away to the back post to attack the ball because I knew the cross would be coming. I made my run just as the ball was struck, got between the central defenders and headed it. We used to love it when something we had worked on in training came off in a match. United's Lou Macari said after the game that Watford would reach the first division, but that Blissett was the only one who had enough about him to go all the way with them. Macari was almost right. The League Cup run continued all the way to the semi-final, where Watford lost to the reigning champions and League Cup holders Nottingham Forest. The newspapers loved it. Elton John's Rocket Men were born. In the league, Watford were on course for a second successive promotion. Between them, Jenkins and Blissett scored 50 goals in the league with another 15 in the cup competitions. They were absolutely lethal. The style of play was very entertaining for the supporters, says Jenkins. Graham got his message across effectively, so we all understood what we were trying to do. Footballers like to play exciting, positive football. I don't think many people enjoy trying to play for a 1-0 and Graham always wanted us to do something positive. Wally Downs was very good on the wing, putting in a lot of crosses. They used to say that if a missile went across the penalty area, I'd be able to get my head on the end of it. There were days when we played teams off the pitch because when it clicked, they just couldn't live with us. Watford made it look easy, but people underestimated the effort that went into it. Often, Blissett would run back and forwards across the pitch three or four times as central defenders played the ball one way then the other. The closing down you didn't revel, he says. You knew you had to do it, and it was bloody hard work, but the rewards were that if you won the ball back from the opposition that far up the pitch, you would have a chance to score. It was exciting to be part of, because we played quickly but with an element of control. It wasn't just kick and rush, as so many people thought. We played the game where the opposition are at their least comfortable. We put them under pressure and forced them to make mistakes. No one could live with us for 90 minutes. If a team matched us for fitness for 60 minutes, they wouldn't go much beyond that. We could steamroller teams in the last 20 minutes because we were fitter than them, says Blissett. 
Taylor continued to add to his squad. John Sturk, a right-back from Ipswich Town, joined and then came a left-back who would turn out to be one of Taylor's most important signings. Steve Harrison was 26 years old, a tough-tackling defender who had played for his hometown club Blackpool before a spell with the Vancouver Whitecaps in the North American Soccer League. Now he wanted to return home and was all set to go back to Blackpool until his friend, Dennis Booth, rang him and asked if he wanted to join Watford. I set up a meeting but I didn't have a car so I borrowed one, says Harrison. It broke down around Keel and I managed to get it towed back to Blackpool. Next day I came down on the train. I'd arranged to meet Graham at the station and when I arrived there was no sign of him so I rang the club from a payphone. They said he should have been there. It turned out he was sitting outside the station in his car and he'd been watching me weighing me up. Bertie and Graham took me for a sandwich in the little cafe at the station. I couldn't believe it. I was having a sandwich with a double winner. I signed and it took a long time to get a house. At the time there was a lot of gazumping in the property market. I remember telling me mam in Fleetwood how much our house was costing. £31,000, she said. You can buy a whole street up here for that. Harrison had a real battle with Keith Pritchett for the number three shirt and for a while the pair took turns in the first team. Even when he was out of the side, Harrison enjoyed himself. A huge fan of visual comedy, Laurel and Hardy, the Marx Brothers and Morecambe and Wise in particular, he loved to make people laugh. I hated humour where you hurt people. I never took the mickey out of someone when they weren't there, but I'd do it when they were there, so they were part of it. I used to make a fool of myself and make the lads laugh, and sometimes I overdid it and Graham had to tell me to stop it. Taylor's management style made an immediate impression on Harrison. He was a great manager then, and he'd be a great manager now. He drove everything, and he did everything. He chose the curtains in his office, he interviewed the staff, he did the lot. He was completely different to everyone I'd worked with before and since. The methods were very simple, very precise and very concise. I didn't realise until later how much methodology went into the training, but he made sure it wasn't complicated for the players. The amount of work he did was incredible. We used to go home at four o'clock absolutely knackered. Most days there were two sessions, and after we went home he'd go back to the office and work for another few hours. After training, you just wanted to go home and sit down, but sometimes Dennis Booth and I would go for a few jars. I lived in Croxley Green, he was in Tolpits Lane, and we'd go to the Irish club around the corner. Booth, he was always going on about that match at Manchester United. He had this video player. It must have been one of the first Betamax machines or something, and he'd recorded the highlights on BBC Sports Night. Well, he put in the cross for the goal, didn't he? So he'd say, let's go home and watch me video. And I'd say, oh no, not that again. And he'd reply, oh go on, just the good bits. Always thinking ahead. Graham Taylor began planning for the second division by signing a young defender he had first spotted back in Lincoln. Steve Sims was a centre-half, as his father had been. He was tall and elegant and could head the ball and tackle, but Sims felt he could do more than that. He wanted to play. As a teenager, he'd not registered on Lincoln City's radar, playing instead for the non-league neighbours Lincoln United, until Taylor took over as manager of the Imps. By then, First Division Leicester City had spotted Sims, and his father encouraged him to go. 
Sims got into the first team in 1975 when he was 18, and although he was in and out of the Leicester side, he was picked to play for the England B team. He was young and impressionable, and growing up at Leicester among the wide boys in even wider collars and flares was not the place to pick up good habits. I'd been brought up with Frank Worthington and the stars, and the way they behaved was rubbing off on me, he says. You don't realise it at the time, but you look up to these people, and you start to take after them. They were great players, but they got up to some interesting things off the pitch, and I thought, oh, that's normal, is it? In December 1978... Watford spent £175,000 on the 21-year-old. It blew the club's previous transfer record out of the water. Not only that, it was also the most any third division club had ever spent on a player. At the time, many first division clubs didn't spend that much. Taylor signed Sims because he was worried about Ian Bolton's back, which was causing problems more frequently. A disc had slipped again, and no one knew how long it would keep him out. I was in hospital, and they brought round the evening paper, Bolton says. The back page was all about how we'd signed Steve Sims. Graham came in to see me that evening, and I said, Oh, cheers, boss. But there was a problem for Watford. Sims was far from the finished article, despite the price tag, and needed a lot of work to get a promising career back on the right track. I'd lost my way, Sims says, and I don't think Graham realised what he was getting. I was happy to go down the divisions to play, but I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't as fit as Graham wanted. At Leicester we never did any running, just ball work, so when I got to Watford it was amazing. On my second day we did a cross-country run, through the park, across the golf course, through the woods. I was way, way behind, and I had to keep an eye on where the next one was, or else I'd still be out there in the dark. Graham wanted me to be more professional on and off the pitch, which I needed. At first it was a struggle to fit into the side. Sims was cup-tied for the League Cup, so he missed out on the quarter-final against Stoke City and the two-legged semi coming back into the team for league matches. The supporters wondered if Taylor had taken leave of his senses spending so much on a player who didn't appear to be thriving after dropping down a couple of divisions. After twelve games, Sims was dropped, as what had seemed a smooth course for promotion hit rocky waters. I didn't really fit in at first. I'd been brought up playing the ball from the back, but Graham wanted to get it forward quickly. I used to take risks, and sometimes they wouldn't come off and I'd get caught in possession. As the weeks went by, I was getting fitter, but I hadn't adapted to the style of play. I'd dive in, so Bertie used to talk to me about when to tackle and when to wait. I had to earn the respect of the players, which I didn't do when I first got there. We were having a bit of a stutter, and in the end, Graham left me out for my own good. If we'd failed to go up, it would have been seen as my fault. The crowd didn't accept me because of the money I'd cost and the way I was playing. Although Watford was still top of the table, they had been caught by a pack of teams and were looking much less assured as the spring wore on. There were too many draws and defeats. It took a while for Sims to win people over. One day, Sims and the goalkeeper, Andy Rankin, were in a taxi. The driver recognised Rankin and started talking about Watford and their stuttering promotion chances, before saying, Graham Taylor's doing a great job. The only mistake he's made is buying that wanker Sims. He's useless. Rankin replied, quick as a flash, By the way, can I introduce you to Steve Sims? On Good Friday, Watford were turned over by Colchester United 3-0 at Vicarage Road. The following day, they had to play at Shrewsbury, 
now just three points behind them, so the coach arrived in Occupation Road to pick them up after the drubbing. Graham Taylor saw Elton John in the corridor. The chairman was seething, but not just at the result. He'd been in the toilet, in the cubicle, and heard two Colchester directors come in and say, We showed that puff, didn't we, eh? Homophobic abuse was depressingly common from the terraces, but hearing it from people working in the game, even other directors, was not unknown either. Taylor told Elton to rise above it. Whether that is the right or wrong thing, or what we would do today, at the time, when things like that happened, I told him that we would hold our heads up high and be better people than those who chose to say things like that. I asked Elton to go in and shake their hands and say congratulations, even if he didn't mean it, because we had to come together and focus on the next game. When the coach reached Shrewsbury, Taylor called a meeting. Jim Harrowell, one of the directors, had made the journey on the coach with the team. Right, gather round, you lot, said Taylor. Mr Harrowell, can you roll up your right trouser leg, please? Mr Harrowell did so, revealing an open wound that had never properly healed in more than thirty years. Now, Mr Harrowell fought in the Second World War, said Taylor, and he has to live with that, and he has to have it dressed. How many times a week, Mr Harrowell? Twice. Twice a week. And you lot, you play football for a living. You don't know you're born. The following day, Watford dug deep to hold their promotion rival Shrewsbury to a one-all draw, keeping their promotion challenge on track. As the season reached a nail-biting conclusion, many supporters were convinced they'd blow it. They remembered missing out in 1964 and again in 1967, and the tension was getting to the players. They won their penultimate match 3-2 at Sheffield Wednesday on May the 5th, and then had a nine-day wait for the final game at home against Hull City. In the meantime, Shrewsbury, Swindon and Gillingham all had a couple of games in hand, and Watford's players had to train every day knowing that their destiny was beyond their control. By the time the Hull match came round, Watford were down to third place and knew they had to win to go up. A few days before the match, the players reported for training as usual. It was a bright spring day, and they were ready to be put through their paces. After a run to warm up, Taylor told the players to lie down on the grass and look up into the blue sky, to look at the fluffy white clouds gently drifting by. After a few moments, he said, It's good being the gaffer. I was lying there thinking, What's he up to now? says Steve Harrison. We're very lucky people, really, you know, Taylor continued. Here we are. Not a care in the world. All we've got to do is get ready to play a football match on Saturday. That's not real work, is it? I was thinking, this is Barney. He's lost it now, says Harrison. But I'm the luckiest of all, because I'm the manager. And if I fancy a day off, I can take one. So I think I'll pop home, take the wife for a bit of lunch, and sit in the garden for the afternoon enjoying this lovely weather. By now... We were all looking at each other, wondering if he was winding us up, says Harrison. Well, what are you waiting for? Don't you fancy it? Let's all have the day off, and I'll see you tomorrow. A few days later, they thumped Hull 4-0 at Vicarage Road, and, with a new decade just around the corner, Watford were back in the second division.
end of Chapter 3. Next time, Division 2 slows the charge and Graham Taylor realises he has to make changes. <laughs>